This morning we're continuing to make our way through the book of Leviticus, so let me encourage you, if you have your own Bible, to open to Leviticus 18. Again, the the theme of our study of Leviticus this summer is about holiness, uh, about what it means for God to be holy and what it means for us to be holy as God's people. Many of us have read about uh, the kind of spiritual awakening that took place in England in the 19th century, sorry, the 18th century. There was the first and second great awakening, and you've probably heard stories about great preachers from that era like George Whitfield or John Wesley. And whatever the Holy Spirit was doing at that time, uh, there was such an interest in hearing God's word and and the message of mercy and grace being proclaimed, that the churches couldn't physically hold all the people who were coming to hear these preachers. And so they took to the open-air spaces. They would go out into the fields or to the mining communities in England and draw crowds, in many cases upwards of 10,000 people in that day. Through uh, that, that movement of God within a few decades, the, the landscape, the spiritual landscape of England was radically renewed and, and reconfigured. And things like Methodism uh, took off. There was an evangelical revival within the Church of England. And sometimes uh, the, the movements that were spawned, especially in Wesleyanism, were referred to as the, the holiness movements. People were showing a a renewed interest in the gospel. But a a lesser known part of that story is the revival that took place following these great awakenings in the the last part of the 18th century, the early 19th century. And that was a kind of great awakening uh, that, that in many ways had its roots in those great preachers and in the foundations that folks like Wesley and Whitfield had had laid. But this renewal focused on the British family. It focused on social institutions. It focused even on what was happening at the far reaches of the British Empire. And in many cases, the work of this revival and renewal was in large measure thanks to a, a group of friends who lived in London known as the Clapham Fellowship or the Clapham Sect. They all lived within a few blocks of each other in London, and they were influential in society, in politics, in the houses of parliament, but they were also deeply committed followers of Jesus. And this evangelical group of brothers and sisters concerned themselves with the social issues of their day. They pushed for things like the end of the British slave trade, they saw to it that the prisons and the workhouses of England were reformed and improved. They cautioned the British Empire against the the dangers and the oppressive powers of colonialism. And they they fought against other forms of economic injustice. And this group of of friends, they believed that the the holiness of the gospel, the the call to be like God in, in, in his holiness was something that was not just an interior experience. It wasn't just a message we preached to our souls and to ourselves as individuals, but that it was was meant to be carried out into every corner of our lives. They believed that holiness 
was meant to be holistic. Right? It has this expansive vision. We find a similar idea represented in the book of Leviticus. Now, up to now, for the past month, the, the chapters, the first half of this book that we've studied, has primarily focused on the nature of holiness in who God is and how we experience God or how we approach Him in worship. Most of the first 17 chapters has to deal with what happens at the tabernacle, right, with the priests and the sacrifices and, and the festivals of Israel. But as we move toward the second half of Leviticus, starting this Sunday, we see that God's holiness is, is most certainly something that, that we encounter in worship, but it doesn't stop there. Right? It's meant to go out. Holiness is meant to touch every dimension of who we are. It's meant to touch what we love. It's meant to touch our desires. It's meant to touch how we relate to one another. Holiness is even about the kind of communities we construct together. So as we look at Leviticus 18 and 19 this morning, we see a a kind of blueprint or a plan for how Israel was to live, how Israel was to be configured in that time. And I hope in that we also hear a challenge to us today that our, our worship in a similar way, is meant to change us. Right? Our worship is not just about encountering the presence of God, but it's about God being given permission to reorder who we are. To reorder not just what Sunday morning looks like, right? but, but everything, every facet, all of life is meant to be made holy by the character and the nature and, and the ability to be in relationship with a holy God. So let me pray for us as we open God's word this morning. Lord, we believe that you alone are holy. You alone are a living God. You alone are the creator of all things. And Lord, you call us to be your holy people, and that means we must belong to you. We must trust you. We must allow your word to to have authority over our lives, to to re-envision what life is about. Lord, I pray that we would enter into the great freedom, the great liberty, the great joy of what it means to be your holy people today. Pray that as I preach now, may the words of my mouth May the meditations of all of, our, all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've said, the first 17 chapters of Leviticus up to this point, again, deal primarily with regulations and customs about what happened in worship. They detail priests and sacrifices and laws about who or who may not, or, or when or when we may not approach the, the presence of God in the tabernacle. But starting here in chapter 18, there is a new section that, that goes all the way to the end of chapter 26. And many scholars or commentaries refer to this as a, a code for holy living. Here the focus expands beyond the tabernacle, beyond the, the worshiping life of Israel. And it provides a vision for 
what, re what relationships look like, what families are to look like, what work is to look like, how we rest, how we celebrate. It, it provides this vision of, of every dimension of who we are. Let me look at the first five verses of this section with you. Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you to. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws. Be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Heading into this, this next big block of text and teaching, chapters 18 to 26, before we get into the laws and the specific decrees and commands God gives to Israel, we have these first five verses that are kind of a prologue or an introduction to that section. And they introduce a theme that is critical for us if we're going to understand what holiness looks like for us as a people. God says here in verses 1 and 2, gather the people of Israel, gather them together and tell them the very first thing you need to understand about holy living is this. Today, you are no longer considered people who live in Egypt, right? I've brought you out of Egypt. Today, you're, you're not going to become like the, the Canaanite people among whom I will settle you in a short period of time. Instead, today, you are the people of Israel. Today, I am the Lord your God. God says that, that the, the core part of his vision of, of what it means to make this new nation, to make this, this group of people in, into something unique and something holy, at the center of that idea is that they must belong to God. These first five verses are all about belonging. And you'll notice I've bolded the phrase, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. That sounds familiar. It's because you, you see that appear at several points throughout the first five books of the Bible. There are words that God spoke to Abraham when he called him. There are words that God speaks to the other patriarchs. There are words that God speaks to Moses again and again as he delivered them out of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and, and made them his people there in the desert of Sinai. And just so the people of Israel couldn't possibly miss or, or misunderstand who they were, in these last few chapters of Leviticus, we see the phrase, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God, appear 47 times. Right? Sometimes it's after every sentence. Biblical scholar Gordon Wenham says, these words serve as a constant reminder to tell Israel who they were and whom they served. 
Who are you? You are a people belonging to Yahweh. A people belonging to the one true and living God. And so in order to be holy, we have to know to whom we belong. Sometimes if you're in a large group of people and you see a little kid running around sort of disconnected from his parents, right? You might, you might ask him, who do you belong to? And at, at a young age, as a child, we instinctively know the answer to that question, right? We look around and we point to our mother or our father. And when we're children, our self-concept is directly linked to our parents. Right? We, we snuggle up next to them. We want to be close to them. We hold their hand as we cross the road. And it's from that sense of belonging that, that our identity is formed. Right? We, we come to understand who we are and who we belong to. And then, and then from that identity comes a desire to imitate our parents. Right? We desire to be like them, to talk like them, to move like them, to act like them. The beginning of chapter 18 here, God makes clear that we belong to him. That he is like a parent and we are like his children. He says, because he is our God, then we are also meant not just to belong to him, but be like him. To reflect his holiness in everything we do. And so beginning then in verse 6 of chapter 18, Leviticus opens into a series of decrees and laws that that define holiness for us. And the first section that it speaks to is a place where we powerfully experience identity and, and belonging. And that is, in particular, the way we use our bodies as human beings. Look at chapter 18, verses 6 through 30. I've only got the first and last of those verses here because it's a, it's a long section of text. But I'd encourage you, if you've got it open there, to, to look through what's included. Most of our contemporary ideas about sexuality in, in this modern or postmodern age are deeply rooted in a sense of individualism. Right? If, you, if you listen to the music we have today, if you look at the, the literature we produce, the kinds of films we create, the way we express ourselves in relationships, we often see sex as an expression of our personal identity and, and it, it's something that we think makes a statement about who we are. Our culture sends us all sorts of messages that suggest that our, our sense of worth and our sense of value is, is deeply enmeshed with our sexuality. And at the start of the 21st century, I think we have a world and a culture that is increasingly asking sex to provide a sense of the transcendent, right? to find and, and locate their meaning and significance in this dimension of our humanity. But as the, the old song goes, so often we go looking for love in all the wrong sorts of places. 
That's not just a modern or postmodern phenomenon. In fact, if you go back into the history books and you read about what was happening at this time when Israel was taken out of Egypt, if you look at the practices of ancient Egypt, you look at the Canaanite customs, you look at Assyrian worship practices, you'll find sexual relationships that were equally, if not more, unhinged and sort of distorted than even what we see in our current situation. And I think it's because they also shared this sort of modern or postmodern assumption in antiquity that the human body was essentially ours to do as we please with. It's ours to, to do as, as we desire. It's ours to make meaning with this dimension of who we are. But that's not what God expresses here in chapter 18. In fact, he says one of the very first places that Israel is called to be different than the nations, the very first places that they are to be set apart as a people, is by insisting that their bodies are holy. And again, that word holy means that they are set apart, that they are dedicated that they are belonging to God. Yahweh says your your body and your sexuality is a divine gift that is ultimately something that connects you to me as creator. And so in the interest of, of caring for and causing that aspect of who we are to flourish, God places boundaries around human sexuality in chapter 18. And the first series of those boundaries are expressed in verses 6 through 18. You can see there are a series of of things that are forbidden. And and primarily here, these verses in 6 to 18, guard family relationships from sexual intrusion. They guard against things like polygamy, things like incest. It protects the space where we are meant to know who we are and and who we belong to and the the safety of those things, it it protects those things from from sexual distortion. Similarly, in verses 19 through 23, Israel is also warned against allowing the customs of the nations around them. Their practices both in worship uh, and also in, in their personal lives keep those things from distorting their experience of this gift God has given. And so there is a prohibition against things like adultery. There is a prohibition against homosexual partnerships. There is a prohibition against child sacrifice. Again, offering the things that belong to God to somewhere or to someone else. In both cases, the idea here is reinforced that what we do with our bodies matters, because our bodies, Scripture says, are not just our own. This chapter concludes in verse 30, again, with this language, this reminder. God says, do not defile yourself, do not give yourselves over to these customs and these practices, because I am the Lord, your God. Because you have an identity in me. You have great worth in my eyes. 
So, so do not allow this, this powerful dimension of how I've created you to be broken, to be distorted. I think as Christians in our contemporary moment, then one of the most radical things we can do with our bodies and with our sexuality is to affirm that they truly matter to God. Right? They matter whether we're young or whether we're old, whether we're single or whether we're married. Right? We need to, to renew and reimagine this, this reality that, that our sexuality is something holy. It's something given to God and a gift he has given to us. And so that has sort of two, two parts to it. On the one hand, right, that means we have to, to guard it in some ways. We have to guard against an onslaught of things in our world that would cheapen or debase human sexuality. But more than that, holiness is not simply saying no to the area of human sexuality. It also offers a resounding yes. Right? Holiness is remembering and naming the fact that people are created in the image of God, that God created us good, created this dimension of our, our bodies and our sexuality as good. And that what we do then as creations made in the image of God can either affirm the holiness God desires from us or, or it can destroy it. I think as we go through life and we, we come to understand what God is like, I think we, we come to see that his holiness is far more expansive and I think far better, far more life-giving than we first imagined. Right, often we hear the word holiness, we think of, of songs in church or, or uh, worship services or, or sort of sacred experiences. But, but holiness, God has this, this great and expansive vision for what it is. Yes, it describes how we meet the presence of God in worship, but it also informs how we view our bodies and as we look into chapter 19, we also see that holiness has implications for the kind of relationships and communities we build. Chapter 19, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. At the end of the chapter he, he summarizes and he says again, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them, for I am the Lord. You see that phrase again. In chapter 19, God says, for, for him to be our God, it means that how we live together matters means the way we treat each other, the way we live in our homes and in our workplaces matters. And so chapter 19 gives us this incredible list of how Israel is called to be holy. Verse 3 tells us that they're to be a community that honors their fathers and mothers, right, and respects the investment and authority they've been given to care for their children. Verse 9 says that they're to be a community that when they harvest their crops, they're to leave a portion of their harvest behind, leave it in the field, so that those who are hungry, those who are strangers in their land, have something to eat as well. Verses 15 through 18 
command the Israelites to be a people committed to justice. It guards them against slandering or or speaking untruthfully about their neighbor. And instead, it, it gives the command which Jesus will echo in the New Testament to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Verses 23 through 25 remind them that, that the land and the fruit of the land is a, is a gift from God and it's to be viewed as such. In verse 32, they're told to, to rise in the presence of gray hairs, to honor the, the elder, to, to honor those with wisdom in their community. And astonishingly, in verses 33 and 34 for that time, They are told that they are to treat the immigrant in their land as one who is native-born. There is not to be a favoritism expressed between those who who are originally part of Israel and those who come to join them. In short, we're, we're given a picture of a people who demonstrate holiness in the way they farm, in the way they trade, in the way they live as families. Right? Their lives are meant to, to reflect this one basic idea, that they are a people that belong to Yahweh. Right? That, that who Yahweh is comes to bear in who they are and are becoming. I want to play you a brief clip. This uh, comes from the Reframe series that we did about a year and a half ago as a church, but it, it speaks to this point. How, how God calls Israel is is just a fascinating um, reflection of how we very rarely really get the fullness and understanding of who God is and what he does. These are not a unique people in, in, in certain ways. They're not already a powerful nation. Um, they are, in some sense, in this huge scope of humanity, uh, an insignificant group in an insignificant world in an insignificant time period, like all of us at some point in our lives. We're all insignificant people in an insignificant world in an insignificant time period. And yet God chooses, and yet God calls. Um, and I do believe that that's a reflection of how God is found in the ordinary as well as in the extraordinary. It's important to look at the Old Testament and not to take it as God's ideal blueprint for a society. God is not saying, this is what I want done everywhere at every time. Uh, God instead is working in history. Israel is meant to be an example to the nations of what a society can look like if Yahweh is its Lord. And in the Torah, we have... Uh, law that looks like other ancient Near Eastern law, but it's also different. It's better. Um, It's better to be a woman there than there is anywhere else in the ancient Near East. It's better to be poor in Israel than it is to be anywhere else. It's better to be somebody of another ethnicity in Israel than it is to be anywhere else. And other nations can look at Israel and say, you know, that's possible. So Israel's living out the cultural mandate of a kind of shalom-making and shalomful way of life, parallel to the way the church is supposed to love each other. sort of illustration or image that we're given earlier in the book of Leviticus. We're told back when the, the, the garments of the high priest are being described that Aaron, as the high priest, was to put on these beautiful robes and garments and then to put on a turban and across the front of that turban, in Hebrew, the words, holy to the Lord, were, were inscribed upon his head. And all of Israel would see that as, as Aaron 
stood before them, leading them in worship. Right? And that communicated the idea that everything he did, everything about who he was, from, from his personal body to, to the way he lived, the choices he made, the work he did, all of it was holy. All of it was devoted. All of it was, was consecrated to the Lord. And this idea that, that he belonged to the Lord signaled in turn to Israel that they too were a people that belonged to the Lord. As they gathered in worship, it, it showed them, it demonstrated to them their, their sense of belonging. Think in a similar way then here in chapter 19. The idea is that not just the high priest, but, but all of God's people are to have this holiness inscribed upon us. Right? We're, we are to live out that holiness to a watching world. And that's the language that First Peter picks up in chapter 2, where he goes back to Exodus, he goes back to Leviticus, and he says, you now, because of, of what Christ has done, because he has called you to himself, he has formed you into a new people, right? you are a holy priesthood. You are God's special possession, and you are called to declare his praises before the world. Let me pray for us that we might be a people that are holy and devoted to God in all of who we are. Lord, it is only by your mercy that we are called and set apart that we might be known as, as your children today. But Lord, we also believe that in choosing us, you desire us to be different, to be set apart, to know who we belong to, to draw our identity from you. And so, Lord, would you both guard us and protect us and shape us so that we might be holy as you are holy. But as you do that, Lord, may we live compellingly. May we live in the presence of our neighbors, our families, as a people who convey, who image, who extend your character to those who do not yet know you. Lord, may we be holy like you in our righteousness, but also holy like you in our mercy. May we be holy like you in every respect. Lord, I pray that you would expand and increase our vision of what it means simply to belong to you today. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.